Good to see everybody. Are you doing okay? All right, good. Hey, let's, let's, let's start out by giving some love to our, our Mountain family at all of our locations. Can we just say hi to everybody on the other side of the camera? We're at Abingdon, Edgewood, Mountain Road, Aberdeen, online. Glad you're with us today. Um, hey, and if it's your first time here and you're a guest, wow, did you pick a doozy of a day to show up? <laughs> oh, well, here you are. Um, yeah, you know, they say if you want to really draw a crowd and fire everybody up, you preach on sex. So here we are and here you are. The other thing you can do, they say, is, is you preach on the end times. That'll really draw a crowd. But if you really want to draw a crowd, you preach on will there be sex in the end times? And then you really, you really get them. We're going to focus on just the first part of that. You know, this, this is a tricky subject. This, tri- this is going to be difficult in certain ways because we're just coming from so many different perspectives today. Um, but you know what? We're, we've always been, I love that about Mountain. We're kind of a church that is willing to dive into hot potato and difficult things to see what God might say about every single area of our lives. So, so here we go. You've heard the reminders. It is kind of mature uh, conversation for adults, so it's a great time to get exposed to um, uh, Mountain Kids for that birth to fifth grade and then be ready for conversations with older kids, okay? And, uh, uh, and then also, um, you know, we call this... Um, series you asked for it, but we, we, we can only kind of cover so much in each time, and I really want to encourage you to try to be here every week, just to get, no, no one week's going to cover everything or, or, or nuance this properly, so if you're able at all, man, really try to get every single message, because it's all part of one sort of unified whole, okay? That makes sense, doesn't it? And then also, you know, we call this, um, you asked for it, because uh, it's based on the questions that, that come, and we've tried to jump in with answering those. But if you would like to ask a question that you hope we could find time to get to in our uh, series, you just text it to the, the mountain texting number, nine, four, what is it again? 94062. And your question will be anonymous and whatever. Just text your question there, and we'll try to get to that. Also, some of you may be like, you know, I, I, I've been meaning to kind of do a little digging on this. I want to dig deeper and do some more study. And we've tried to put together a kind of, just the beginning of a resource list of maybe to help you find, like, here's some places you could start to to look, to study, and to try to get your arms around this subject matter. So that's on the website as well. You can go find that pretty easily. Um, So we got to talk about this because everybody is talking about it, right? Uh, That's one reason. And and, um, and it's it's a big deal. It's deeply personal to so many of us. I think a lot of us are really wrestling and thinking with or really concerned about someone for whom this is a really live issue right now, um, faith and sexuality and how it all really goes together. It's deeply personal. And, uh, and also because, frankly, it's hugely divisive. Um, I mean, there's a very polarizing topic, sexuality, in our, in our country today. And um, it's dividing families and churches and so forth. So we've got to have some clarity around that and be able to, to, to kind of have some unity there. A couple things to remember is that this is really complex, okay? I'm sure you'll find someone, plenty of people, who will say, oh, it's actually very simple, the blah, 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 and they got all the easy-peasy answers. And I'm telling you, that's good for them, but it's, it's actually not simple. It's, it's a very complex issue because of the, the various starting places that people have. And so we have to take that into account because of our mission, uh, which, is, which is just to help people come to know Jesus. So, so it's complex. And, and that's another thing to remind you of is because of the complexity of it, I want to assure you of the posture that we'll be taking um, all the way through, as with everything else around here. You know, we're not going to call anyone who happens to disagree with, with, uh, with us an idiot. 
you know. Um, uh, we're going to be marked by these twin markers all the way through of conviction, but also gracious humility, you know. Just like you've got it, grace and truth. Um, just like Jesus himself was marked. Convictions becoming uh, out of that place where it'd say, well, as best as we can tell, this is what Scripture would have us to believe and this is what God wants. But also gracious humility that just says, you know what, we understand and respect that not everyone's going to agree. We're not going to make pronouncements or condemnations against those who do. We're not going to disparage or attack people with nasty remarks or, or labels or anything like that. It doesn't help anything. It do, it's not a good look for Jesus. So uh, we're just going to take our position and state it firmly, but always kindly, never with an angry, anxious edge to it like is so common today around this topic. And just um, always just cover it with gentle graciousness because at the end of the day, we're not talking about an issue here, right? We're not talking about topics or Bible verses. We're talking about people. We're talking about us and people we dearly love. And so this is why the posture matters as much as what we say. It's how we say it that matters so, so, so much. Let me just remind you as we begin that Jesus assured us that he was coming to bring good news. God is a good, good father. He's a good news God. And if something that we share today or in coming weeks doesn't feel or sound like good news to you, I would really encourage you to kind of just think about that and wrestle with why that might be. That's all I'll say about that. Just press in on that. If it feels like this doesn't sound like good news to me, Maybe that's a clue for an area you need to do some more thinking about, okay? So, uh, none of us was very old when we started thinking about sexuality in certain ways. I mean, even as a little person, we do. I mean, a two-year-old sitting in the bathtub with mama, right? Mama, you know, points, points to his ear. What's this, mama? Oh, that's your ear, honey. That's how you can hear me wake you up in the morning. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. What's this? Oh, that's your nose. That's how you can smell daddy's pancakes. Oh, yeah. And then the game continues, right? What's this? Oh, that's your eyeball. That's, that's how you can see me. Uh, oh, good. What's that? Oh, that's your mouth, silly. You know that. And can, can, game continues, right? It's like, what's this? Well, that's your belly button. And then he goes further south and he points down there and he says, what's this, mommy? And mommy says, ask your daddy. <laughs> or, or maybe like, my, this water's getting so chilly. Let's get you out of here and get ready for bed. Because there's an awkwardness around there. There's a discomfort we have, which is kind of odd in a way, isn't it? Because we live in a, in a sex-saturated society. We're clearly sexual beings ourselves. The economy is run by sexuality. The advertising, movie shows, it's everywhere. And yet we have this discomfort in talking about it. Maybe especially where? <laughs> in church. Is, is an area where we might have discomfort. And that's maybe, maybe it is understandable to have some anxiety around it because there's a lot at stake. There's a lot riding on this. And for people we love and care about, I mean, some of you are very nervous, I'm sure, about what's going to be said. You're nervous, you know, because you're afraid someone might get offended or maybe you're concerned, you know, that your kids will hear something that will maybe turn them off to the church or something like that. And I don't know how to remo remove all of that um, other than to say, I think, just to acknowledge it, that there's some discomfort. I mean, if you think you're uncomfortable, just how do you think I feel? <laughs> you want to switch places? I mean, my mother-in-law is going to listen to this for crying out loud. So. Uh, 
So we thought about how to do this, you know, and it's, it's tricky. You know, it's like, well, we thought, well, should we use like the anatomically correct jargon, you know? And it's like, oh, no one wants to hear their preacher say that word. And, and then it's like, well, well, or maybe we should use the slang, you know, like should I refer to hooking up and getting some and doing the nasty and now you're all really uncomfortable. Uh, or should we use like kitty terms, like some of you still do at your house, like and refer to tatas and wee-wees and ding-dongs and whatever, you know, whatever else. So, you know, what, what, what a lot of us might be surprised to discover is that the Bible actually doesn't do any of that. God doesn't have any trouble talking about sex, and he doesn't use slang, and he doesn't use kitty talk or anatomically correct stuff. What, what God in the scriptures often uses kind of metaphors, like poetic language to describe sexuality, and it's really actually very beautiful. Classic place as an example would be uh, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs we call it, chapter 7, verse 8 and following. This is written from a young man's point of view. He's, about, he's just excited about his wife who's coming, and, and he says to her, and this is a great pickup line, guys. I would I'd definitely try to use this. You are slender like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters of fruit. Try that sometime. <laughs> that'll, that'll go for you. I, I said, I, I want to climb that palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like grape clusters, and the fragrance of your breath like apples. Come here, apple breath. Kissing you is more delicious than drinking the finest wine. How wonderful and tasty. So you can see it's pretty steamy stuff. And it's like, I know some of you I lost completely back on the grabbing the fruit part. I realize it's like a guy over here is like, honey, I found my, my new life verse. <laughs> but, but so Scripture's not embarrassed, okay? It's not embarrassed at all. And, and, then, and then, in fact, it goes both ways, this unapologetic, unembarrassed celebration of sexuality between man and woman in this marriage bed is, is found in the next verses with the woman saying back to him, I am my lover's, and he claims me as his own. Come, my love, and let's go out to the fields and spend the night among the wildflowers in a little romantic getaway. Let us get up early and go to the vineyards and see if the grapevines have budded, if the blossoms have opened... And if the pomegranates have bloomed, and there I will give you my love, there the mandrakes give off their fragrance, and the finest fruits are at our door. New delights as well as old. We're going to find some new things and some old things here, which I have saved for you. So I don't think I need to go into detail to explain those word pictures about blossoms opening and the inside of a pomegranate and all of that stuff. I think you can figure it out. But it's the sights, the sounds, even the smells of erotic sexuality shared in this sizzling way between a husband and a wife that are, are just held up in Scripture as a beautiful thing. I like what Howie Hendricks says. We should never be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. And so we're not going to be ashamed about it at all. We're going to dive right in. And, and you know, I, I, I just want to assure you again, everything will be done with grace and truth. And if you're tempted to kind of lash out or walk out or frustrated or whatever, just pay attention to that because Jesus brings good news. And our prayer, we've been praying so hard for this, that every one of us, wherever you're coming at this today, whatever, you know, history you have in this area, however you've been taught about all this, is that you'd realize it's good news so that there, where there's confusion, there could be clarity. And where maybe there could be some guilt, there could instead be grace. And where there may be addiction, freedom. And where there may be loneliness, belonging, and intimacy. And where there may be some brokenness, beauty, and where there might be anxiousness, peace, 
and where there might be frustration or sadness, joy in and around this issue. What we're calling this whole series is um, God and sexuality. God and sexuality. Even the juxtaposition of those two words probably seems a little odd or off-putting to some of us. We're not accustomed to thinking of those two together. My new favorite salad dressing, by the way, is um, oil and vinegar. Okay, anybody like oil and vinegar? Yeah, it's, I love it. They usually come in separate containers sometimes, and then you put them together. And if you let them sit, what happens? They what? They separate. But if you shake it up, it's awesome. It's like thumbs up on the oil and vinegar. Same with God and sexuality in a way. It's like we're used to keeping them separate. And they tend to separate just in our thinking. We want our spirituality, spiritual stuff over here, and my God stuff over here. My biology in one corner and my theology in another corner. But when you put them together and mix them up, something really wonderful does happen. And that's what we want to try to do in this series. They belong together. And when one of the problems with them coming together is we don't always realize all the influences that have come into our lives over a period of years. We have no idea even all the ways we've been conformed to a different narrative and understanding of sexuality. We're all being sexually discipled, right? So you know the word discipled means it's just someone who helps shape your thinking and your understanding, your practice about any given thing. This is what discipleship is. And sexuality is just a part of our lives that we're all being... The question isn't, are you being disciples? The question is, by whom and what? We all have our understandings and ideas of sexuality formed. And what happens is, very often, we become what someone called sexual atheists, where an atheist someone says, God doesn't, isn't, isn't even alive in this area, isn't around in this area. And we have that going on in our lives. And we have all these influences that are there. It's an onslaught, and, it, and we're not even realizing it most of the time. It's like an ocean that we're swimming in, unaware of the surroundings the whole time. So we're going to try our best to bring together God and our sexuality and the topic of sexuality so we can see the whole issue through God's eyes. You know, we're, we, we, are, we're, we all agree that there's a whole lot of messaging going on around this, especially the last 20, 30 years. There's a whole lot of change in ideology around this. And, you know, even the best of a church attenders, you know, I got you a couple hours a month. And the rest, I guess, the screens get us. So we're being discipled by our screens. So you can imagine how that's going to go. So if we can just open our hearts and say, you know, is there, is there any way, God, can I just be soft toward the possibility that you might have something to say about this area of my life and then be tender and open to God's Word on that. Because I, it, it, it's helpful to kind of think for a minute about all the ways that we actually are kind of conformed to the, the certain perspectives on sexuality. I mean, maybe think about your own life. How did we develop our thinking on sexuality? Well, a lot of us, it begins in the home. It begins, if you had older siblings, that was your beginning of sex education for a lot of us, right? You heard things or you saw things or kids in the neighborhood whispering and snickering about different things. Probably a great many of us can remember our first encounter with pornography of some kind. Yeah? I was in third or fourth grade when I was at a friend's house after school. And uh, he took me to the basement bedroom where they pulled out a box from under the uh, bed and took the lid off. And there were his father's uh, pornographic magazines were. And he opened one of those up and showed me things I had not seen before. And I remember feeling this strange mixture of excitement and also confusion, but uh, shame 
And then footsteps were heard, and quickly the box was put under there, and we came out and didn't tell a soul. So I learned secrecy is associated with sexuality, which is why when I went home and the mom and dad left the National Geographic on the piano bench, and I found in there a woman from someplace with bare breasts, I felt those same things, excitement and shame and secrecy, tore that page out and kept it right by my bed until my mom found it about a week later. <laughs> and now you just think about that compared to the end of the supply of hardcore uh, video that's available on any device. Eight-year-old can get a hold of it very easily, and we're being sexually formed and conformed in so many ways to be taught that sex is this thing that does abide in secrecy or shame or or. or or it's a selfish act, or people are objects, or uh, my, my desires must be met. And this is all happening without our even realizing that our neural pathway, all the research is saying, that our neural pathways have literally been rerouted, rerun as a result of the onslaught of messaging that we get. And you go to sex ed class, and then, you know, you remember, remember that. Well, it's like all they do is point to a diagram, you know, um, with a bunch of body parts, and this is a this, and this is a that, and when this goes there, this happens, and so so that's what sex is, and then be safe about it, so put a this over a top of that so that doesn't happen, and, and that never anything beyond the biological, nothing about the spiritual and the magical and the mysterious and the sacred specialness of such an intimate expression, but all of it just sort of echoed by the shows and the sitcoms and the songs and the algorithms that we all just swim in every single day. And the narrative of our culture is that people are objects to be used for our desires, and if you repress any ounce of your sexuality, oh, it's a horrible thing, you know, so a hookup culture is now celebrated and all kinds of non-traditional ex expressions of sex and gender that don't, don't, aren't just, cel just accepted but celebrated. And when you get to middle school or high school or college, we're told just, you know, become as physical as possible, as quick as possible, just go for it, you know, because um, nobody, nobody's honest enough to tell the whole story that, you know what, when you get to that inevitable part of courtship, which is called breaking up, it's going to be extremely painful because you have a bond that's tighter than it's ever been through sexuality, and so we do the only thing we know to do in the midst of that pain that feels like a divorce is we latch on to someone else and bond to them sexually to try to fill the void, and then that doesn't work, and we reattach and attach and reattach and attach over and over again in this endless cycle, and, pay, and it becomes this sort of emptying experience rather than a filling experience. And you deal with all of that, and then two people like that, being schooled in that kind of mindset, get married, conditioned their whole lives to think of sex in these ways as a, ultimately a selfish pursuit where... It's about your pleasure and getting some rather than giving a gift to a partner that you're committed to for their benefit and blessing and mutual enjoyment. And so this gift that was meant to unite in special intimacy becomes a source of contention and expect expectation and frustration and division. And that's where we are. And we're not the first people to kind of wrestle with a sort of sexual revolution that's been jammed down our throats and being, being unaware of it. You know, way back in the first century, the same thing was going on. In the city of Rome, for example, everything you find today in our society on any street here, and it's all, it was all there, the hookup culture, gender, same-sex, opposite, everything. It was all there. Go read the history. It's all there. And then a bunch of them found Jesus 
And by his grace, he met them right where they were and started to lead them on this beautiful new adventure. And they become these followers of Jesus Christ. And after this amazing grace has come to them, they're so excited. And the Apostle Paul writes them a letter and explains to them and says in chapter 12, now, listen, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Don't just blindly swallow the ideology that everybody else says is normal now. No, don't, don't, don't do that. You've got to let God remold your minds. There's got to be some reshaping here. It's the word transformation in the original language. Like, this is going to be a pretty big change. And people then and people today have to decide if you're willing to let the Jesus who saves you by grace be the Lord of your life because that will help transform our minds in a beautiful way. And here's where I'd like to start today if we're going to let our minds be transformed is this. Sexuality has a divine design. Okay? Sexuality has a divine design. It means God thought of it and it's his idea. When Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce, he aimed them back to the beginning template of Scripture, which is found in Genesis 1 and 2. First two books of the Bible. Fair for us to go there as well. And that's where you find this core truth that sexuality is revealed to have a very purposeful design. So listen, your view of sexuality comes down to whether you believe the first words of the Bible. So much of how you're going to think about all this, your sexual understanding is going to hinge on this first verse. Here's what it says, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, a lot of people, of course, don't believe that. They think this is all that there is, just what we're looking at. The physical, material universe is it. There is nothing beyond us, beside us. There is no God who created on purpose, with purpose, for a purpose. No. They would say we're all just sort of merely at animal level, here by accident. So if you have that view, well, of course, you're going to come to a very different conclusion about sexuality because God's not a part of your equation at all. Why there's so many radically different views? Because we're starting at fundamental different starting places. So I would just say, if, if, if I'm talking to someone who, who doesn't have a God at the center of your world, okay, um, we would just invite you to listen in and see if what we're sharing has the ring of truth to it and sounds like it holds water. And for the Christians who would say, I, I want to believe in God, and I do believe that God is there, but who still somehow are maybe living where your theology and, and, your, and your biology aren't matching, that you would think about areas where you're living in a world devoid of God, and if you can bring your sexuality and your God together. So this is really important. We have to decide right out the gate what, what do we really believe? And is there, do we believe there's a God behind everything? And do you believe that that God loves you and that he, he has his best your best interest in mind and that therefore he's good and can be trusted even to the point of surrendering our will to his? That's the key of the whole issue. Would you be even willing to obey a good God like that and believe that everything has a divine design? Now, we can see the evidence of a divine design all around in the world. You look around the world, you, you can see it. 
I think you can see it, and you look at the human eyeball and the incredible level of intricacy and complication in there, and you can say, well, that's just an accident, or you can say, I think there's a divine design there, and that was there on purpose, and that's how it works that way. Or you can look at all, you know, the earth and, and how it rotates perfectly on its axis, or its, its distance from the sun, which is like perfectly calibrated. If we're a little closer or further, we all fry or freeze. And you can look at that and say there's divine design. And so it's natural if you're willing to look at the world that way and say, in the beginning God created, that you would also say that God created humans in his own image and that therefore sexuality as a part of that image has a divine design, which if you say that, you're going to come to the place where you say, God, I trust your design even more than I trust my desires. My culture is saying my desires are God. I'm saying you're God and I trust your design. Fundamental question at the outset. God, I, I trust your purpose even more than my pursuit of pleasure. I know the culture is schooling me to think that my pursuit of pleasure is my God, but I, I trust you and your plans and purposes for my life. I trust the Creator's design more than the culture's trends. And this is where we begin. And if we can kind of build on that and sort of just slowly inch our way through these early template passages in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, we, we find things like this. Genesis 1, 27 goes on to say a couple of verses later, so God created humankind, that's us, in His own image. And in the image of God, He created them, male and female. He created them. Now that verse has been anchoring the first page of the Bible for centuries. But now in the moment in which we live, this cultural moment, it's become a very contentious thing to say. In fact, it's offensive to so many, the truths contained in it. I can't think of something that would have greater cultural pushback in the world in which we live today, maybe specifically around two ideas. One, we are in fact created in the image of God. And if you actually believe that, that every person you know is an image bearer of the divine, well, it changes how you think about sexuality, doesn't it? If, if my spouse is also an image bearer, or my fiancé, or my boyfriend or girlfriend, or that person on the video screen is also an image bearer, then it changes how we approach sexuality. And the other thing that's in that verse is it says that God made them male and female. Now, this, is, this isn't a, a sermon or a series on genderism um, per se. We'll try to touch just lightly on a few things there. But when we talk about God and sexuality, we're forced right at the beginning to acknowledge that we are talking about male and female. That's part of the way God made us. And it's not a matter of what Ben said or Mountain said or whatever. We're just saying, reporting the Scriptures here on the first page of, of the Bible, which says God said that He created in His image male and female. And then He says, the only time He ever says, it's very good. It's very good. Together, somehow, we make up humanity. And, and we want to add that if you are someone or you know someone who, who's really struggling in this area where your inner feelings aren't matching your outer biology, where your psychology is, is grinding against your physiology and, and you're in terrible distress, we just want to say we're here for you to walk with you through whatever that experience is like. It can be very painful and 
awkward and difficult, and you need a safe place to just walk through that, and we're here for you. And we would also say that we would, by our convictions, point you and all of us back to these scriptures, which remind us that we're created a certain way, male and female, and that we understand that there's a range of what it can mean to look like male, and it's a range, a spectrum and continuum of female. I mean, not every female looks like Barbie. Not every guy looks like Ken. We understand all of that, but we would just point everyone back to that Scripture based on our conviction and understanding, because if you design it, you get to define it, and there is a divine intent. So as you bump forward, you see some other things come up. You see Genesis 2. You see God creates Eve. And, and uh, he says it's not good for the, the man to be alone. And so this perfect compliment is introduced, this woman, and he brings her to Adam. It's kind of a humorous scene in a way, I think. Um, she's naked, and Adam sees her for the first time. He's been standing around, you know, looking at orangutans or whatever. And, and, and he, kind of, he breaks out into song. He's like so excited. And I don't know what the song was. I mean, it was... Bow chicka wow wow or let, come on, baby, light my fire. I don't know what it was, but, um, but something. He, he literally says, at last, this is the one for me. This one fits God. Your design, I see it now. It fits perfectly, spiritually, mostly, and physically. We fit. And, and it's called woman. Um, in the Hebrew, it, it, the word for man here is ish. And, and for, the, for the female, it's, he, he sees the woman. He goes, isha. It's a play on words. It's beautiful to see how they fit. And if you go on and look at verse 24 then, it goes on to explain, this is why a man would leave his father and mother. Girls, pro tip, if you're looking for marriage material, go for that dude who's got a job, has kind of separated enough from dependence on mom and dad and isn't in the basement playing Call of Duty 20 hours a day, you're looking for someone who understands that there's a point where you grow up and mature and separate so he can reattach to you and then is united at that point then to his wife. That's code for get married. You put a ring on it. And then they become one flesh, a beautiful euphemism for the commingling of souls and a sacred, beautiful, mysterious exchange with a supernatural flair to it of the sexual consummation. So the order is there. And uh, you, you first, you mature, grow, and differentiate, leave. Then you make a lifelong covenant and commitment. You don't just get married in your pants. You get married with a you know, with the piece of paper that says, I will be there for you. I, I, I will covenant and commit and make vows to you. And then, then you're going to be able to enjoy the consummation of that in a way you simply can't. And this beautiful co-mingling of souls out of that covenantal commitment is one of the one flesh mysteries of the gospel that God provides for us. And so there's a sequence, and all the singles are going, I don't know, I don't see the sequence. And all the dads with daughters are like, I see it. And, uh, but it's there. So divine design. Now I want to point something out. Before there was sin, there was sex. Okay? Because sometimes I think we think sex was sort of this unfortunate you know, thing that actually got, you know, muddied the waters or something. You know, it sort of corrupted everything and, and happened. But, but sex was part of God's good plan from the beginning. Sex was there at the beginning. It wasn't like God, you know, we, 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 we discovered sex behind God's back or something. 
Like one day God's wandering around. It's like, I wonder where Adam and Eve are. I haven't, they just disappeared on me. And then he hears a noise from behind the bush and looks and he's like, oh, what are you, what are you doing? How did that, you know, I can't unsee that. You know, that's not how it went down. That's not what happened. And if you grew up with the impression that sex was nasty or naughty or grossed out or secret or shameful or any of that stuff, and we should feel bad about it, even if you learned it in your church, it's all wrong. There's a beautiful divine design at the beginning. God designed sexuality to consummate that marriage covenant between a husband and wife. It's a beautiful thing. And he designed it to reproduce and start a family. Go be fruitful and multiply. First command. Get to it. And then God designed sex for our pleasure. Have you ever stop and think about what a good gift it really is? How God, I mean, God could have made it mechanical or, you know, difficult, but, but he designed it to be pleasurable. He didn't have to. I mean, can you imagine, like, in heaven during creation, God's having, like, a brainstorming session with the angels? Like, okay, one more thing. We've got to decide how the humans are going to procreate. All right, no idea is a bad idea. I got the whiteboard. Let me hear it, you know. And they're like, ah, uh, you know, you could have them spit in the ear and then it'll come out the mouth. It's like, okay, go. Well, we'll write that down, you know. You can lop off the thumb and put it in the ground. It'll pop out a toddler in a month. Okay. No idea is a bad guy says, listen, I got a better idea. How about this one? And I don't know if he diagrammed or explained it, but he said it. And I bet they all just went, I like it. Let's go with your, that's why you're God. And that's exactly what happened in this beautiful commingling. And then the punchline is God says, and guess what? All the while, it'll point to my love for them. It'll foreshadow the beautiful love of Jesus and the church. We'll get to that. But that's the divine design. Now, with divine design goes like you, you, can, you can take it or leave it, but... God wants to lovingly warn us, oh, please take it, don't hurt yourself. So he always gives these loving warnings, not to ruin our fun or spoil our, or, you know, say you've got to be some sort of old-fashioned person, but just because he doesn't want us to hurt ourselves and, and to fully enjoy the beautiful gift that he's given, which can really be enjoyed only within the divine design to the full extent. Whenever we take God's gifts and we try to use them in our own way, they never come out as good. It's like a manufacturer's label on, on certain products. Like I, I, my dad taught me to be pretty good with a chainsaw. I like to, I like to cut trees and whatever. And, but, you know, I noticed on the chainsaw, there's a, like a little manufacturer's label warning there. It says like, um, do not stop chain with hand. <laughs> so if you're smart to figure out how to start that thing and, and whether it, where the oil goes, I mean, hopefully you're going to know not to do that. But I'm sure out on YouTube there's somebody going, oh, you know, I'm sure it's there, and someone cutting their hand off. And so I kind of come to appreciate the, the manufacturer's warning labels as a way of saying, be careful here. And God puts a few warning labels out there in life in so many different areas that, that Christians and some religious types who don't get the gospel have made into all these rules. It's just not it. It's like, you know, I could say, how stupid. I can't believe that, that steel manufacturing is, 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 is trying to ruin my life by telling me not to grab that blade. That'd be the wrong way to look at it, wouldn't it? And so we have these manufacturer's warning labels from the divine designer because of what happened in the next chapter of Genesis, chapter 3, where everything goes south. I mean, literally, sin enters the world. And in that moment, 
all of our rebellious streak sort of comes to fruition and it knocks everything out of kilter. And it's why every relationship to this very day is complicated. And why there's pain and struggle even in the best of marriages. And why sexuality, this beautiful gift, is now something that causes strain and difficulty because we all have this brokenness and disconnection. Because you can be assured of this, whatever God designs, Satan wants to distort or destroy. Okay? No matter what it is. If it's food, he's like, oh, great, let's figure out a way to ruin that. And we'll teach them how to gorge each other or starve one another or, you know... Or, or whatever it is, Satan will find a way, if it's a gift from God, to distort it or destroy it. One of the ways you see it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, is God had laid down some clear guidelines right there for them. And Eve's like, got it, got it, got it. And then the serpent, Satan in disguise, comes to her, chapter 3, verse 1. He was very crafty. And you know what he said to the woman? Did God really say? I mean, I know, I know that's what you think he said. But did God really say that? I mean, let's look at that again. And this, this is actually the way that he tempted Jesus. It's the way that he continues to tempt people today. The Bible's sometimes very, very clear and sometimes tricky to understand. But what makes it harder is when we begin to wonder if it's even true at all. Like, did God really say that? And this is maybe the fundamental question for us today is to decide, you know, do we really trust the Word of God, or do we doubt the divine design by asking, did God really say? And if you're saying that, I, I think I can tell you where that voice is coming from. You separate your spirituality and your sexuality, and there's no telling where you'll land. So there are these warning labels in Scripture. One of the manufacturer's labels is in First Thessalonians 4, for example. Verses 3 to 5. It, it, it's, it's encouragement. It's meant to be this encouragement to get to the life we want. And it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 5, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. What does that mean? Well, it means that you would keep growing in your faith and like keep letting God change you and bring any area of your life that's out of alignment into alignment. That's what sanctification means, that you just grow to look more like Jesus. So that's God's will for your life and mine. And then it says one of the ways you need to do that is in this culture in which you live, which could have been written just to us, is that you should avoid the phrase, and he uses the phrase sexual immorality. It's kind of a blanket term. Don't hurt yourself. Don't grab the chainsaw blade. And he expresses how that would look, like that each of you should learn to control your own body. Our culture tells us, no, 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 no. If you've got urges, follow them. And he's saying you might have urges that go against what God is calling you to do, and you've got to be smarter to, go, to trust God on this in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans. Of course there are people who don't know God, and they're going to go do whatever. But if you're saying, I believe in God, well then, this is going to be a marked area of difference in your life. That word sexual immorality there is just a catch-all term, kind of a junk door term. I think it, it really is just describing anything outside of that Genesis 2 description of divine design we just talked about. Anything outside of it. So what is sexual immorality according to the Bible? I don't know. To be frank and graphic, I suppose it would include sexual intercourse before marriage, um, outside of marriage, through adultery, same-sex sex, polygamy, polyamory, 
any other sexual intimacy that should be reserved for the marriage bed, defiling of genitals, or masturbating to someone other than your spouse. I don't know. You, you make the list. It, it, we're always about trying to how far can we go, and the Bible's not interested in that question. It's just trying to say, don't grab the, 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 the blade. Don't flirt with the line. And some of us may still, even after that list, feel like, well, I think I'm, I think I'm okay. And I would just remind you that Jesus says, you know what, if you even so much as look at someone with lust in your heart, which is something we've all done, you're guilty of all of it, which I'm trying to make the point. This is not about a sort of us and them conversation here. It's about us, all of us, in the same boat here, People who have experienced the brokenness on the other side of the sin issue, we all experience brokenness around, around sexuality. So let's just do something that will be a little awkward, but maybe important for us. I need everyone to participate in this at every single campus. If you've ever done anything that I just listed on that long list of sexual stuff, including a lust of the eyes or a thought in the mind, would you just raise your hand right now? I'm going to start because that's me. Okay, so... Keep your hand up. We're, we're going to take a picture. And No, I'm just kidding. Here, here's the thing. You can look around. Okay, every hand is up. And the hands that aren't up are either just uncomfortable or they have BO or they're liars. I don't know. But it's all of us. Okay? It's all of us. It's me. It's you. We all just fall short. And what I'm trying to help us see is that this is not a bunch of sort of good people trying to help those bad people be more like us. It's like, no, we're all, like, if you put it in these terms, sort of bad people who have met the only good person to ever have lived, who is Jesus Christ, who has graced us with his grace and has invited us in to say, look, I know, I know, I know, I have this beautiful thing, we've all fallen short, but I can help you find wholeness and peace again. But you got to trust me, stop grabbing the blade. That's it. We're not good people. We're, we're bad people trying to point everyone to Jesus. We're all sexually broken people trying to trust this one who showed up on the scene, Luke 4, and said, I'm going to set the captives free. I'm here to bring good news. So, so let, me just, let me just stop and say, you know what? I know this has been hard today for a lot of us. I'm sure. I just want to say thank you for hanging in there with me. And maybe especially if you... Um, if you've been disappointed by some of what you've heard, or it's particularly challenging, I'm humbled that you are here and that you're listening. Thank you. I know it's a tough topic. I know it may be hard because you're like, oh, I don't know how so-and-so is going to take that or whatever. All I got to just, I just need you to hear our heart on this. And that is that I am so absolutely convinced that we have a good, good God who wants nothing but his love to enter our hearts. He's not a killjoy. He's for you, and he loves you. He's not against you. And because of that, and his love for your kids and for you, and because of my love for all of us, I don't know how to edit the words of the Creator to fit better with the culture. I, don't know. I, I can't do that. But I know how to bring it in love and to say, I've just seen this happen so many times. If, if we can just surrender every part of our life under the Lordship of Jesus, it's amazing what might happen. Don't forget John 3.16, God so loved the world. 
that he came and he gave his only son, who, who then put his feelings and his desires aside in order to do what love required. And you may need to do the same. And the next verse says that he didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's why he came. But we have to decide if we trust him enough to take him at his word, that he wants the best for us. You know, Jesus consistently encountered people who were broken in every way, including lots of sexual sinners and sexually confused and broken people. You know that? And never once did he shame one of them or scold them or reject them or cast them out as some kind of pariah. Never. Not once did Jesus do that. Never has he since and never will he. He just wants to love and change us by his grace. I believe someone hearing this today is going to surrender parts of their life they haven't surrendered before and let Jesus change you. Maybe some of you are going to have a change in a relationship or a conversation that needs to happen. Or consider that some of what you've heard is really coming out of a heart of love of God. Maybe there's some healing that can happen as we all come to the place where we say, God, not my will, but yours be done. Even in this area, of not just, you know, you, God, but my sexuality. So that's our prayer. Take a deep breath. We're done. Let's pray. You are a good, good Father. Help us to trust that, believe that. Some of us who remember a parent saying something to us that didn't feel very loving at the time, but later we discovered how loving it was. God, that's what we pray happens here in this area. We all have such a journey to go, such a long way to go to become who you're calling us to be. And we really don't know whether we can believe that your way is better than ours. And I pray that you would move hearts, change lives by the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, who brings good news from you, good, good Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.